as we head into 2023, we're taking a look back at some of our favorite and most inspiring episodes that we have shared over time. Here are five incredible interviews that we hope will bring you more excitement, passion, confidence, and inspiration as you head into the new year and are met with more opportunities and more challenges. And finally, one of my favorite podcast episodes of all time with the incredible actor Matthew McConaughey on attaining the unbelievable. So I hope you enjoy these five select episodes of the Mind Valley podcast as we head into 2023. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a foolish word. A rude and disrespectful word. We think we use it to flatter and give credit to. Wow, what an unbelievable play. What an unbelievable film. What an unbelievable act of courage. What an unbelievable sunset. Now, why would we define things that are incredible and awesome, things that actually make us believe in them more with this pillar of antonymy? Unbelievable. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Matthew, firstly, just want to say I am an avid reader. I've written two New York Times bestsellers myself, and I know a good book when I pick it up. And when I first read that a Hollywood actor, wrote a book on the art of living, I thought, okay, I mean, Matthew McConaughey is an amazing guy, and the book is probably going to be fairly basic for someone who is deep into the craft of personal growth. But when I read your book, it's become my favorite book of the last 12 months. And I mean this, the quality of the prose, you are a true poet, man, but also the wisdom in the book is captivating. And I would tell anyone out there that if you're looking for a really good personal growth book, green lights will keep you hooked. Thank you. I'm glad it landed on you. You know, it's been, you go write a book, it's very personal, you share it, any piece of art. What do you call successful art? Well, when it translates in some way personally, and I found in writing it, like most art that translates, the more personal I got, the more it was uh, applicable to more people and personally in humankind. And that's been really the funnest part about this sort of 14 week tour of talking about the book is, is I'm talking about the same subjects with everybody, but every single person and every conversation is original and particular that I've never had before. And everyone, I'm looking at some of the social media stuff, right? And I'm seeing, and for those of you who are watching this live, I'm seeing incredible social media posts on how you're interpreting the book. So keep doing that. I want to share this opening line from the book. It's about the definition of green lights. Feel free to read from this, so feel free to define, but what is a green light? Green light are the things, green lights in our life are the things that affirm our way. Freedom, privilege, yes, attaboy, way to go, more please, Uh uh-huh, yes. Things that say carry on. As I said earlier, they affirm our way. We like them because they do that. They create no resistance. They keep us in the flow when we're on frequency. Yellow and red lights, you know, yellow slows us down, red makes us stop. We usually don't want yellow and red lights because they impede our flow. But even though we don't want them, we usually find out, which is part of the riddle of the title, is that all the yellow and reds eventually turn green or at least reveal green light assets 
via the lessons we had to learn in them later in life. Because if life was all just green light, it'd be for nothing more than entertainment and we'd be running in circles and we wouldn't evolve. So you need the yellows. Whoa, take a pause here. Why do I keep stepping in that same pothole back there? So maybe I need to stop and create a forced winter for myself in a red light so I can evolve. A forced winter for yourself in a red light. I love some of the little doodles and scraps of paper you have in the book. And you have this, this image. <laughs> you read it for the audience? Yeah. Some people want the AC on in the gym so they won't sweat. I wear my beanie in July, so I will. Now, mind you, I'm speaking about the American July when it's hot. So think of, if you're in Australia, think of your December when it's 45 Celsius. So, yeah, I've never understood. It's kind of a play on. I've never really understood why people want an air conditioner on in a gym. Aren't you coming there to sweat? I love to sweat as much as I can. So I actually, I run at high noon. My favorite runs and exercises are at high noon when the sun is at its hottest in the middle of the summer because I generate a sweat that much quicker. Always have. So one of the things you mentioned, green lights. It's about finding green lights, right? Now, going back to this quote, you mentioned catching more of them in the future can be about intuition, karma, fortune. And Matthew, in the book, there's this intriguing idea that you speak about called the walkabout. And you say this, we all need a walkabout. We need to put ourselves in places of decreased sensory input so we can hear the background signals of our psychological processes. Let's talk about the walkabout. The walkabout. Look, today more than ever, social media, phone calls, meetings, incoming frequencies are everywhere. And it's awesome. They're awesome tools. So we're more connected than ever before. But in the midst of that, we sometimes lose our baseline. What's our theme? What's our, you know, it's like we're in this world of, you know, sell me in 15 seconds. You know what I mean? You got to catch me right with whatever you're coming at me with in the first 15 seconds or I lose my attention span. Our attention spans are getting shorter. All right. So the walkabout, take a walk without even maybe a destination or just pick a point and go off and get where you, you'll see what happens. Everyone will see what happens. You start to reach for that phone. Wait, I don't have the phone. Don't take the phone on you. You start to want to talk to a friend or you like, maybe I want to get in my car. Whatever crutches we have, they begin to reveal themselves. And as you start to go, oh, I don't have those. I'm just going to be listening on my walk about dealing with what I can see, what I can hear. That's good time because the frequencies and all the treble noises are going out. And we sort of lay into our baseline. We hear the music of our own soul and our hearts talking to our heads. And we have a longer thought process. That's why I call it a baseline. It's a longer thought process, more meaning to a longer story that we're living or how we're seeing the world or what decision we want to make. It's much more legato. A walkabout will bring back the legato in the music of our life rather than all the staccato, which is back to back to back immediacy and all the impressions of frequency that we deal with daily. So a walkabout, it's an Australian term. Aboriginals do it. You take off. And it's basically a form of putting yourself in a place where it's quiet, where you can receive the truth. I think the truth's all around us all the time. We're just not, we're usually not in a place to receive it. You take a walkabout and you get out where you've gotten rid of all the noise and frequencies in your life. The truth will then land. You can hear it and see it for the first time. And it'll land on you like a butterfly with a lightning bolt. Now, I like that. I like that. There's this beautiful line from your book about recognizing truth. Would you yeah. read it for us? Yeah. God, when I cross the truth, please give me the awareness to receive it. 
the consciousness to recognize it, the presence to personalize it, the patience to preserve it, and the courage to live it. Yeah, that's chronologically, from my experience, what can come from a good walkabout. The first move is the stepping out of the door to go on the walkabout, to put our place in the place to where the truth can land on it. Then we're in a place to receive it. Then there's a consciousness. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, wait, what's that mean to me? What's it coming to me for right now? Once we personalize it, we feel the ego with it, which is good. Why is it for me? I, which is, I think, very, it needs to be personal. And then it is, okay, well, now I need to preserve this. So it's going to take some patience. And then comes the hard and fun part. The courage to take it back into the noisy life, the coliseum of noise and frequency that we re-enter after it crosses us. And that's the fun and hard part. You know, and that's something I noticed about what you shed in the final chapter of the book about how you wrote the book. You said you spent two weeks in a desert, two weeks in a pine forest, two weeks by a river where you learned to swim. And I was struck by your level of memory your level of memory, quotes that you heard in Mali, situations that happened in the Amazon rainforest years ago, conversations yeah. with your brother. And you mentioned how you'd been writing everything down, journaling, writing things down. Is that a regular habit? Do you constantly write down or journal what's going on with your life? I, yeah, now I carry it with me on a phone, but it used to be a journal or it used to be a beer koozie or a matchbox, or I always have a pin on my, uh, on my necklace. And before mobile devices that have the pen and I'd just write it on my arm and then ask somebody, I'd come home and transcribe it off my arm at the end of the night or at the end of the day, whatever I'd written on my arm. And then it moved to, I carried a journal on me and now I write things down. Anything that moves me or turns me on, somebody says something, you say something, you spin a lyric in this conversation that makes me go, oh, there's a bigger idea to deconstruct there. I'm going to reach over, write it down. And you're going to go, what are you doing, McConaughey? Why aren't you present with me? And I'm going to be like, hang on, I'm not writing someone else that's not here. I'm actually writing that down and I'll write it down. And then I'll go, hey, is this what you said? And you'll read it and you'll go, yeah. And I go, I'm going to sign your name on here. And if I use it, I'll footnote you. Is that cool? And then, so I write it down so I can then forget it so I can stay present in this conversation. And then after we're off the phone, after we're off the meeting, I can then go back and go, hmm, let's deconstruct that idea. Right, right, right. One of the things, folks, I loved about green lights is this level of detail. This is my favorite quote in the book. So tell us the context, because this is Ali Faka Toure, who's now become like the musician I'm listening to. You travel well, all the way to Mali to meet this man. I tell go me. to Mali, yeah, which is chasing down the second half of a very particular dream that I had had. And this is in 1999. I'm in Dublin. I have this dream again. It's the exact same dream I've had two times prior. And you'll see in the book, it's now telling me I need to go seek the second half of my dream, which all I know is it, the second half of my dream takes place in Africa. Where the hell do I go in Africa? Well, it's a mighty big continent, I tell myself. And I'm sitting around for a few days trying to figure out where to go. And I've been listening to my favorite musician, Ali Farkaturi. And I'm something like, it hits me one night. I go, well, he's from Africa. Where's he from? I open up the liner notes. I find out he's from Niafunke on the Niger River in Mali, Africa. I said, boom, there it is. I'm getting a one-way ticket to Bamako. I'll figure it out from there. I fly into Bamako, the capital of Mali, hitchhike nine hours to Mopti, meet a guide. I say, I want to go find Ali. Uh, Ali is up the river, man. Up the river about, about four day, four day. So we get a boat. We go up four days. We walk into the city. Where's Ali? They say he live in this town. He live in this town. 
All of a sudden, this land cruiser comes flying by, throwing up sand. They go, this is Ali. So we go chase down Ali. He's not there. He was at his second wife's home. He's Muslim. We find him. He has no idea who I am. We have sit down. We have lunch. I tell him about what I love about his music. He tells me about a time in Paris when he made the rain stop. He shows me on a video, blah, 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 blah. And that was that trip. Now, that's in 99. Cut to 05, 2005, six years later, I go back to Mali unannounced, find my guide, head out. There's a thing called Festival Al Desert. It's in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And I'm like, well, let's go out there. This is six years after I met Ali. Okay. And he doesn't even know I'm coming back. On the way to that concert in the middle of the desert, we come across that same Land Cruiser, but it's got the hood up and smoke coming out because it overheated. We pull up. It's Ali and two French journalists. He immediately sees me and goes, Dauda, which was my name six years prior, nickname for David in Bambara. Dauda, you've been eating well, my friend, because I'd put on weight, right? Now, cut to the three nights at this great concert with people, with kids, children's choirs from Morocco, playing with Ali on a stage, all these great musicians. The last night, I'm walking around at 4 a.m. and I hear these strings coming from under a tent. And I know they're Ali's strings. I dip my head under the tent, go in. I sit there with him. He plays. I get a personal concert for two hours until the sun rises. At the end of it, I say to him through the translation of the French journalist, Ali, why do you not play in Europe or America? And he tells me this quote in Bambara. Because there, I would be dried shit. Neither me nor my scent would stick with you. But here, I am wet shit. Both me and my scent stick with you. And I was like, and that was through translation. And I wrote that down. And I was that like, down in your way to break it down, man. <laughs> I love that. One of the things I appreciate about a good writer is the storytelling. Yeah. The storytelling. And as you tell your stories, there are lessons there. You know, when you told the story about Ali, well, the first thing, folks, when you buy this book, Read it with Ali Faka Torres' music playing on Spotify. You will freaking thank Matthew later. But Matthew, I also noticed little things about you as, as a person. For example, that the guy, Isa, who showed you around, that you stayed friends with him. You ended up going to visit Greece with him recently. Yeah, and, and I find that ability for you, one of Hollywood's hottest stars, to just connect with everyone, something that we can all learn from. Let's talk about that for a moment, because you write a lot about that in your book, connecting yeah. with the blue collar, connecting with everyone. What is that gift that you have? Well, maybe if you go back to that earlier quote of saying, I'm convinced that the world's conspiring for me to be happy. I mean, I don't know if that's literally technically mathematically true, but I approach it that way. I've been told this, that, look, I go into you and I meet for the first time today. When I say hi to you, I'm giving you 100% of my trust until you prove me otherwise. People tell me, no, 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 that they go into situations, zero trust until you earn it more. And I'm going like, oh, geez, that sounds like a, a lot of hard work, man. I mean, come on, let's come in with a little bit of, hey, we both have an expectation. You're not going to try and pick my pocket. You're not trying to screw me over until you do, right? I think if we come in with that idea and greet the world like that, even strangers sometimes, we get a more like response, trusting response from them. So I've always loved finding the common denominator of mankind, whether that is 
blue collar trailer parks or going to Mali and meeting Issa or spending time with kings and queens around the world. What's the common denominator? Well, if people like community, they like to laugh. They like to have something to look forward to. They like to have a good conversation. So I love this line from your book, okay? It's about appreciating a place fully and giving it the justice it deserves. This was a huge lesson for me because sometimes when I travel and I bet all of you watching, you know, have experienced the same thing, you might bitch and whine about something different from what you're used to. But Matthew, would you read this extract that you wrote? Yeah. To appreciate a place fully, a man must know that he can live there. When all his discomforts disappear and he lets himself be owned by the place, he needs to customize and localize himself to the place he visits to the degree that he knows he could dwell there forever. Now, then and only then is it truly acceptable for him to leave. Wherever you are, give the place the justice it deserves. Yeah, I believe that. You know, we all head out on a walkabout or a road trip or go travel somewhere and you start to get cold feet halfway there. You're like, ah, maybe I think I, I need to turn around. It's time to go home. Time to go home. I've had the best stories and the best lessons I've learned when I kept going and went to a place and really looked at it. Not like, oh, when am I going to get out of here? How soon can I go home? Look at that like, no, this, I'm staying here until I'm going, this could be my existence. I could live like this. You know, I go visit a monastery. Stay until I believe that I could, okay, I could be a monk. This could be it. Then and only then, like the next day, once I realize that on trip, the next day, I think we go, oh, well, now I'm free to go home because I'm not running from the place. I'm, I already know I could be here. Now I have the freedom to go, stay or go, go or stay. Now you've given it the justice. But if you're trying to get away from a place, well, I just want to get away from it or I want to go back home, you haven't given the place the justice it deserves. You know, one of the things I observed when I look at people who are just like crushing it, who are icons, who are doing incredible things, yourself, people who are great inventors, great entrepreneurs, they seem to dance this fine line between vision. They know what they want. They have these big goals, but they are blissfully happy where they are right now. Their happiness isn't attached to that vision. And I noticed that about you in your writing, Right. The simplicity of the life you led, but the visions that you aim for, the goals. That seems to be in there lies that art of living, I think, you know, a day at a time with the big picture in mind. I mean, we all want to be heading somewhere, but if we're staring at that mountaintop, we're going to trip on the way. And I would say this, even now, my latest thought is really based on this, that I think we're all basically, if we could understand we are chasing yet and that we never actually get there that yes we want the vision but when we get to the top of that proverbial mountain it is not a tada moment it is not a now i've got it no by the time you get there you've got double the amount of ambitions and opportunities and challenges ahead of you than you did when you started <laughs> and it's great because that means you've evolved it means there's been some ascension to life my line now is Stay in the race, commit to the chase. That's as good as it gets. Meaning we're never going to reach our fully transcendent self. That's the point. We keep chasing it. We're never going to have perfect justice in society. That's the point. You keep trying to get it. You know, we're just tapping into the 11%. 
And if we can say, oh, the process, we stay in it. Yes, we want vision. We want to know where we're going. We want to write the headline first and go, I want to head that place. That's where I want to, I want to be. Well, you get there, the headline is not exactly as you wrote it before you took off. <laughs> Hopefully it's generally in the same storyline structure, but it's always yet. Because even when you get to where you think you want to be, you're still going, oh, this is just on the way to yet. You mentioned finding a book by Mandino called The Greatest Salesman in the World, and you borrowed it from one of your college buddies. I haven't read The Greatest Salesman in the World, but I did find this quote that reminded me of you. So I want to ask you a question. What, yes. When you read this quote by Mandino, what comes to mind in terms of your philosophy? Right. So I'm here for a purpose, and that purpose is to grow into a mountain, not to shrink into a grain of sand. Henceforth, from now on, will I apply all of my efforts to become the highest mountain of all, and I will strain my potential until it cries for mercy. Yeah. Oh, I like the teeth that he puts in there at the end. Make it cry for mercy. You know, I always say that love, truth burns and love has fangs. For me, I would say this is about that highest mountain for me individually. And I think for each of us, instead of where the world tells us, maybe that means more or more money or more things. I think that highest mountain is truest self, our truest self. If I can be my truest self, that's the higher mountain. That's the wider mountain. That's the mountain with roots that are wider and deeper not just a vertical ascension to go, oh, I was the tallest. I got to the highest. Well, the one with really a great solid base is the truer self. So that's what I'm chasing, which I know I'll never get there completely. The truer self. So, okay. So there was this one moment in your book where I shed a tear. Okay. It was after I finished the book, it was a beautiful book. And then all of a sudden there was this PS chapter. And in the PS chapter, you shared a list of goals you wrote for yourself two weeks into filming Dazed and Confused, your first movie. And yeah. this was in 1992. Would you read that? There's so much here that's so simple, so simple, so elegant, so true to oneself. But then there's one goal that just, boom, seems awkward and near impossible for most people. Go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, 10 goals in life, September the 1st, 1992. Number one, become a father. Number two, find and keep the woman for me. Number three, keep my relationship with God. Number four, chase my best self. Number five, be an egotistical utilitarian. Number six, take more risks. Number seven, stay close to mom and family. Number eight, win an Oscar for best actor. Number nine, look back and enjoy the view. Number 10, just keep living. Yeah. I found this when I was writing the book. I found it in my diaries. I forgot I wrote it. I remember when I wrote this. I wrote this in the top. I was in the top bunk of my fraternity house at college. And I was about to go to bed. And I wrote this out. Two weeks into filming Days Confused. And I never looked at it again. I forgot about it. But here I find it, however many, 20, however many years later. And I look at it and I go, son of a bitch, you've you're have achieved or are in the midst of achieving all 10 of those. So obviously you actually didn't forget you wrote it, did you, Matthew? But I never looked at it again until I found it when I was writing the book. Yet you won that Oscar. That's the near impossible one. Now, well, that's the one that's so specific. That's like, what? Yeah. And that one, here's the truth about that time. Two weeks into filming Days of Confused, I'm still thinking 
hey, this may be a one-off acting hobby that I'll look back for the rest of my life, go, oh, remember that little job you had in the summer of 92 in college, that at one acting job? I'm still in school. I've got another year of school coming up. I'm not even admitting to my parents or friends that I may want to pursue acting. But then I see that and I go, well, you damn sure admitted it to yourself. <laughs> but I was too afraid to admit it to someone else because I couldn't even dream that I wanted to be an actor. It was, it was always like, even at that time in my life, it was like, oh, well, that would be a foolish pipe dream. That's a hobby. That's something you do on Saturday. Well, I look at that and I'm going, well, boy, subconsciously, you sure, you sure were committed to it. So there's this other really interesting concept that you speak about, the arrow and the target, right? You wrote about this in your book when you spoke about the series of coincidences that led you to meeting the love of your life, the mother of your three children, Camilla. Tell us about the arrow and the target. Feel free to read from this, but I'd love for you to elaborate more on this. What was that goal to win the Oscar? Was it the target or was it an arrow? Ooh. Well, at the time, I believe it was a target. It was the target I was aiming for. But the fact that I never went back and looked at it and never thought about it, like, this is what I want. I got to get this again. It obviously became the target that was drawing the arrow. So I say here, the arrow does not seek the target. The target draws the arrow. We must be aware of what we attract in life because it is no accident or coincidence. The spider waits in his web for dinner to come. Yes, we must chase what we want, seek it out, cast our lines in the water, but sometimes we don't need to make things happen. Our souls are infinitely magnetic. Yeah, this again is that little balance, I think, in the art of living that we have to walk. It's like, what comes first, chicken or the egg? It's both. I look at things, successes in my own life, and many of them are when I wrote the headline first, I set the goal and I went after it. But just as many or more, surprisingly, <laughs> are things that I, where I went off on the walkabout with not having any idea where I was going to end up. And I jumped off the proverbial cliff and said, I'm going to learn how to fly on the way down and pulled something off and walked into the mystery of life and came out of it with a spiritual awakening and being a new man without any goal. So that's the two things. Sometimes you call it out and you go, I know exactly what I'm aiming for. I'm going to get it. Other times you go, no, I need to sit back. You brought up me meeting Camilla. It was a time in my life where I was single, but I was, I was in my thirties and I found myself starting. I was looking for the one at every red light in the produce section at the supermarket, at every party. I'm looking, possible, possible, she, me, maybe her. Can I? And you saw me, I just leaned up when I was telling you the story. Well, I had to all of a sudden go, well, quit leaning in and looking for so much. Why don't you lean back and be present and give yourself the justice you deserve and have a look around and say, if it comes, it's going to come. You be more yourself, you'll draw that. And damn it, that isn't what kind of happened. When I look back and I uh, was at the right place, right time, solved the right woman and met her. And that was 15 years ago. And I didn't find her until I quit looking for her. I love that. Until you quit looking. Okay, that's an important, important lesson there. Dazed and confused. I just watched a movie for the first time just two days ago. But the important thing to understand here is that once again, you were at the right place at the right time. You'd gone to a bar with Tonya, your girlfriend, your classmate Sam was the bartender. Sam mentioned that there was a Hollywood scouting agent, Don Phillips, in Austin, filming a new movie, looking for talent. He told you to go talk to Don. You went and you charmed the heck out of Don. 
And that led to this classic movie. I love hearing the story of how that tiny encounter in that bar, and you again being Matthew McConaughey and charming the heck out of Don, him later becoming your friend, helped put you on that path. But there was one part of the book that really struck me. It's when you moved to Hollywood, you were staying on Don's couch, and you asked him if he could get you some auditions, and he snapped at you. Mm-hmm. And you told that story. I'd love for you to explain the lesson here. Yeah. Yeah, Don Phillips, the man I met, who was the casting director in that bar, who I went up and intentionally went up to him and talked to him. We got along. He calls me in, says, hey, come in, read for this part. You might be right for this part. Three lines turned into three weeks work and now turned into a career 28, 29 years later. So I move out to Hollywood a year later. Days confused. I've been in the movie. I played Wooderson. It now has come out. Didn't do very well in the box office, but did well enough for people to go, I could maybe get a meeting for an agency now. I was kind of on the map as a possible outsider newcomer. And I'm out in Hollywood sleeping on Don's couch. I've only got a couple thousand dollars. And I'm starting to get a little nervous going, man, I I, got to get get a job. And I go to Don. I've been out there for about two and a half weeks. I go to Don. I said, Don, can you get me a meeting with an agent? And he just snapped. I remember him pounding the table. You shut that fucking talk up right now. You got in this town smells you needy. You're fucking done. You need what you need to do is get the hell out of here and go off and do something. Quit thinking about getting a goddamn agent. That's what you need to do. And don't you come back and talk to me about an agent until you don't need it. Oh. And I, I, I understood what he was saying, even though he was scolding me. And I did get out. I put on a backpack, got an economy ticket with a couple of buddies to Amsterdam. There's a story about how we rented these motorcycles on a lark for nothing and lived off of, you know, a few dollars a day and staying in youth hostels for a month and came back. And I hadn't even thought about acting or getting an agent. And as soon as I get back, I'm sitting around about a week later, I'm sitting around with my cutoffs. I've got a couple of plants that I've grown and I'm, I'm watering those. I'm having a beer and I'm sitting there not even thinking about tomorrow get an agent and that's when don goes you're ready and i go for what and he goes for an agency meeting tomorrow morning 8 a.m brian swartz and beth holden william morris agency we're going i'm like oh cool great he was right i went into the meeting i didn't need him i went into the meeting i was cool i wanted him but i also felt like they were getting a catch with getting me i had confidence again and in that meeting that's what probably got me signed That reminds me of a spiritual idea from uh, the Reverend Michael Beckwith. He calls it the law of resonance. He said, the universe doesn't give you what you want. It gives you who you are. When you embody that, that's when the soul of the world bends to give you who you are. Heard. I like that. Now, at the same time, it doesn't mean you just sit back because you've been hustling since you started. There's this beautiful story in your book about how you went up to the dean. You were missing tons of classes in film school in Austin because you were actually out there producing, hustling, doing auditions. Tell us that story. Yeah, so I'm in the honors. Now, mind you, let's go back to pre-hustle. How do I get into film school? I don't have a film. I don't have any art to show anybody. And I'm headed towards law school. But I have a 3.82 out of 4.0 GPA. Really high numbers, high enough where the film school says, well, geez, that I have a GPA. Let's take this guy in. So I get in. I'm in the honors classes. 
I get an AC. I'm starting to dabble in like maybe a little hand modeling, you know, maybe going auditions for a music video here or there. But I got a pager on. Remember the pagers you used to have in the 90s? They beep. They tell you, oh, well, I'd be in class, I'm an honors class studying film. And my pager would go off and they'd go, can you be in Dallas in two hours for a audition for Dwight Yoakam? And I'd be like, I'm out of here. And I'd get up in the middle of class and just go. Well, I had started missing quite a few classes and the teachers, the dean calls me and goes, look, you can't, this is an honors program. You can't just keep stepping out of class. And I go, dean, I'm not going, I'm not just pissing off out there. I'm actually chasing down practical work, experiential work that you're teaching me that I'm learning in class and I'm chasing it down in real life. And I go, look, man, if I just show up, if I tell you I'll be here for every exam, can you just give me a C, just enough to pass? And he just goes, didn't say a word. Well, I continued to chase my pager. I continued to go out and try and get auditions. Missed a whole lot of classes, but showed up for every big exam. And at the end of that semester, I got C's across the board. Straight C's. Oh, so quietly, he understood what I was saying. That I was out there practically pursuing in life experiential learning for what I was studying in the classroom. I love that. I love that. And I bet you're probably in the area of film, you're probably the most successful student in that class. What is your opinion on the current education system? Like, is it important to you that your kids have a degree? What do you think we need to change about the way we educate? Great question. And I'm challenged and concerned with it as you are, because I do think there's a new frontier. The education system has to be more than a knowledge factory. I understand right now my kids are younger. Look, yeah, learn, learn your basics. Read, write, arithmetic. Learn these basics. I understand that. I think we can start sooner the constructive reasoning, constructive argument, the why of doing things, the context of situations. Now, I always had this joke with a friend of mine who asked me, like, hey, why'd the Liberty Bell crack? And I always went, I don't know, but I passed that test. <laughs> I did. I passed the test. I just don't remember the answer. What do I remember in my education? I remember the stuff I was learning trying to hustle in film school, making C's because I was chasing my pager outside of the classroom more than what I learned when I aced the test on the exam in the classroom. Do I think we need the test? Do I think we need to learn? Do I think we need the book? Yes, I do. But as I say to the college communication at school where I'm a professor, to those journalism students, to those advertising students, if you're a journalism student and you've got a protest on campus, get the hell out of the classroom. Get, get down there and go cover it. So in the College of Communication, I'm telling everyone, get out of the class and go experiment. Now, today, the world's changing. Kids, young men and women coming out of school need to be prepared for different job requirements than I did or my brother did or my other brother did or our parents did. The school system's still the, kind of the same, though. We need to talk to the companies, talk to the tech companies. What do you, what do you need? What are you wanting out of our university? We need cities to talk to the universities within their towns and say, hey, can we get a little reciprocity? We would like to, my goal is I would love to see cities hire more people that are out of the local university because they're communicating with the professors. They're communicating with the regents and going, here's what we need. Here's what we're looking, the skills we're looking for out of the young men and women coming out of your school. Can you help prepare them better? Can we help you prepare them better? Can we offer more interns? instead of teaching the same old things that we've been teaching. Because I remember this, 
my oldest brother, who's 65, when he grew up, you were successful and you could get a job if you got a GED. That means you graduated high school. Well, when I'm in high school in 1988, I realized this GED doesn't mean anything. Well, very quickly, I realized that college degree doesn't even mean that much. There are 4.0 college degree, master degree students out there out of work jobless right now. Well, that tells me there's a gap between what we're teaching them and what we need in the workforce. We got to close that gap. You know, there's this beautiful part of your book where you talk about how you decided after you had had a couple of big acting breaks that you were going to study acting and you signed up for acting classes and you started studying acting. And somehow the act of studying acting broke your flow and the offer stopped coming in. So you had to revert that and go back to the non-educated actor. Yeah. What are your views on mindset versus skill set? Because you had a great mindset and you started going for the skill set and it fudged everything up. Well, it fudged everything up early because there's a transition. Look, mindset is key, but you got to have more than mindset. I mean, we can't have a world right now where you just go, well, my mindset's I'm an expert, so I'm an expert. No, bullshit. No, 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 no. You have to have a skill set. So for me, I had a mindset. And then when I started to learn my skill set, we have to remember this. There's an awkward period when you start to learn the skill that you're innately good at. It's an intellectual thing. When you have an instinct of being good at something, all of a sudden you start to get conscious of what it is and you start to really learn it. It becomes an intellectual thing. It's in your head. Well, now you're thinking. Now you're pausing. Now you're considering. Where before you didn't even consider, you were just naturally good at it. Well, you have to go through the skill set until that information moves from the brain the intellectual process into the body and gets incorporated into your instinct. Now your skill set's getting set, but understand there will be an awkward time, a transition, but you will evolve in the learning of the skill set, but it's not supposed to be easy. And actually when you start, when I started to learn my skill set of acting in the book, you know the story, I completely embarrassed myself by being ill-prepared for a job that I was irresponsible not being prepared for and was quite embarrassed. Now, I thought, oh, well, I don't want to learn acting then because now I just failed for the first time when I started to learn what the hell it was. No, actually take the risk to dive into the skill set to an extent that it becomes instinctual and becomes part of the flow. So you're evolving or as my golfer friends say, you're lowering your handicap by learning the skill set. Thank you, Matthew. As we come to the tail end of this, I love this quote from your book, Unbelievable and why you say this is the stupidest word in the English language. <laughs> why would you read that and tell us about this? Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a foolish word. A rude and disrespectful word. We think we use it to flatter and give credit to. Wow, what an unbelievable play. What an unbelievable film. What an unbelievable act of courage. What an unbelievable sunset. Now, why would we define things that are incredible and awesome, things that actually make us believe in them more with this pillar of antonymy? Unbelievable. Stupid ass word. <laughs> it's a cop out. Yeah, don't like the word at all and think we should get rid of it because the things we usually say unbelievable about are the things, as I said, that make us believe in the awesomeness of life more. And you also go on to say, a roof is a man-made thing. Yes. Yeah. I really love this one and unpacking what this means. And I think the human, each of us individually can really dive into this one. 
the constraints we put on ourselves, our potential. Those are man-made. Who the hell do we think we are putting those ceilings above our, ourselves? I've done it. I do it all the time. Things are going so well, I get nervous. Jeez, why me? Why do I deserve this? This is too good. This is too good to be true. This is unbelievable. Uh-uh. I, that's a very arrogant thing for me and us to do. It's an arrogant thing for us mortals to put a roof overhead and go, well, that's as good as it can get. That's as much as I can succeed. That's as much as I can love. That's as sad as I can get. That's as happy as I can get. Now, no more. Again, we're just tapping into the 11%. To use the Icarus analogy, wings, the wax starts to melt on Icarus's wings when he's flying too close to the sun. Most of the times we think our wax is melting on our wings because we're too close to the sun. There's still ice and snow on the ground. It ain't even close to being hot enough to melt the wax. We've got so much further that we can fly that we do not give ourselves the credit for. So take the roof off and say, no, this is not even close as good as, as it can get. I'm tapping into the 11%. I've got trust that we have so much further we can fly than we even mortally give ourselves credit for. And to put a ceiling on ourselves is actually arrogant. Matthew, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Very much enjoyed it, Vishen. Tell us about your not-for-profit, JK Living. Just keep living. Yeah, Camille and I started a, a program in Title I schools. Title I schools, for those of you that don't know, are lower-income schools, high schools. A lot of these young men and women, there's a 50% dropout rate in the school. They have come from a lot of single-parent homes. There's a lot of gang violence in a lot of the neighborhoods. We give them a safe place to go after school where they set a physical goal, like I, I wanna make the soccer team next year, but I'm not in shape. Or I wanna lose three pounds in three months so I can fit my prom dress. We're gonna help you reach that goal. We have a nutritional goal. We help them eat healthier, meaning, okay, your mom bought five cheeseburgers for dinner again last night. Well, let's take the exact same amount of money, that $38 or whatever, and let's take you, instead of buying five cheeseburgers, let's go to this supermarket. We're gonna get you some rice, some vegetables, some beans, and maybe a little bit of meat for the same price, it's going to be a healthier meal, and you're going to get to cook it together as a family. They have to all do community service within their community. And then finally, the last thing, the halo over the curriculum is gratitude. They all sit in a circle at the end of each day, and they sit around and out loud say something to everyone that they're thankful for in their life. Coolest thing I've heard about this is that the, kid, the young men and women love about the gratitude circles. They say, I'm hearing peers of mine say thank you for things in their life that I have in my life that I've never said thank you for. And so that's what we got going. We're in 39 schools across the U.S. and we're uh, needed and looking to go international if we can. How many students are you supporting with this? It's been over, over 10,000 over the time. And the classes, the classes are usually 30 to 60 students apiece per semester. The main funds go to paying that teacher a salary who is usually in the school that if we don't have the right teacher on the ground who loves the program, who's hustling the program within the school, who has the enthusiasm to say, I love this, what it's doing, then our program won't work. We've only had one program that didn't work because it was actually the area and neighborhood was in, it was too, it was too affluent. But we get, you know, donations for buses and field trips and cliff bars and water and exercise equipment for the kids. It's doing talk about resonation and we're feeling the program resonate. We've got, you know, a girl comes into ninth grade, drug problems, older brother was in a gang, failing school, 
she just graduated at the top of her class from UCLA University eight years later. Things like that. That's amazing. And you know what I appreciate about you? There's this moment in your book when you talk about how the first step to deciding who you are is deciding who you aren't. And you had to make a call. You had to sacrifice five projects from your life. And you sacrifice your production company, you sacrifice your reggae music publishing business, and you kept your foundation so you could help these kids. So, so much respect there. Yeah, thank you. So we're at the end of the hour. Thank you for gifting your wisdom to the 3,000 people live. This is going to be all over YouTube, Instagram. And guys, go out and get Green Lights. It's an amazing book. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. We will see you next time out there in the world. Fill that passport up. Take care. Bye. Bye. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.